And let me invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 12 to 26. Um, that's our scripture reading this morning. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you, you're welcome to take one from the uh, the pew racks or the uh, chair racks in front of you. Uh, the blue Bibles uh, will have Acts chapter 1 on page 1156. Now, last week we studied our, uh, or finished our study of the, at the end of the Gospel of Luke. But of course, the story of the church and the story of the ministry of Jesus even doesn't end with the end of the Gospel of Luke. And Luke wrote a sequel to his Gospel account, which we have in front of us that's referred to as the book of Acts. And so I want to take just two more weeks to continue the story, sort of a little epilogue, if you will, uh, to our sermon series that we uh, started back in, in January. This week, the last part of chapter 1, and next week, the first part of chapter 2. So that's where we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 12. Let me invite you to stand if you're able. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter in verse 26, and when I'm done reading, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Ak el Dama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from Judas, which turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, let me just uh, warn you up front, this is going to be a very ordinary sermon. Nothing extraordinary about this sermon, just very, very ordinary. This is what I mean. Right, when I was a kid, uh, our family would spend uh, a lot of weekends during the summer at the, at the Jersey Shore. Ocean City is where my mom grew up. It's where a lot of our family uh, continues to, to live. My grandparents were there. My aunts and, and uncles were there. And we would do typical Jersey Shore kind of weekend stuff, boardwalk rides and beach and burgers on the grill and all kinds of stuff like that with, with family. Well, on a couple of occasions as a, as a younger child, I had a chance to, to spend some time in Ocean City with my grandparents 
during the week. Not on the weekends, during the week. Everyone else had gone home. Just me staying with my grandparents. And I had a great time. But I remember thinking it a little bit strange the first time this, this happened. Monday morning came. And it had been another great sort of, you know, weekend, you know, event or whatever at the Jersey Shore. Monday, Monday morning came and my grandfather went off to work. And my, my grandmother began doing stuff around the house, ordinary stuff. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, well, people in Ocean City have to do work too. It wasn't just boardwalk and burgers. That stuff happened between the weekends, and it was relatively ordinary stuff. Who knew? See, this is what we all know, or what we all discover, that most of our lives are about. Most of our lives are in the middle, not at the big events, but in between them, waiting, doing the next thing on the, on the list, the ordinary. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in the second part of, of Acts chapter 1. We're kind of in the middle. And, and, and in some senses, and if you look at kind of the, the preaching patterns of, of a lot of pastors, it's kind of skippable. And I kind of looked at a lot of, you know, pastors and stuff or whatever. And, you know, if you preach through the book of Acts from beginning to end, well, then you're, you know, you're probably going to touch on this passage. But for those who have just kind of topically preached on different things or whatever, you know, all joking aside from last week, most pastors actually have preached on the ascension of Jesus. It's a big event. Most pastors at some point will preach on Pentecost and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to look at next week. There are not as many, if you're just preaching topically anyway, who intentionally pick out the text that we just read. Why not? Because it's not, it's not a big event. I now mean, I'll argue actually in some ways that it, it actually is, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem that way, at least not in the same sense when it's compared to the ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is what happened in between. This is what's in the middle. And yet this little account of what the followers of Jesus did between the ascension of Jesus and the arrival of the Holy Spirit maybe has something to show us about what life looks like the majority of the time for us, between the big dramatic moments of life. How do we thrive in the ordinary moments that are in the middle? How do we thrive in those moments when we have just experienced something really big and we're waiting for the next something big? And make no mistake about it, if you're a Christian, you are waiting for something really big. Jesus will return again. There is a big event that will happen again. But what is it for us to do while we're here, while we're in the middle between the big events? I want to suggest that the general pattern that we see the apostles and the, and the, and the larger group of disciples following here is a pretty good guide for us as well. And I've summarized it into four rather ordinary things that we find them doing, right? We find them what? Gathering together, praying studying, and acting, administrative kinds of stuff. Gather, pray, study, act. Ordinary, right? Maybe. But mastering those kinds of things are really, really important. So let's start with the first thing we see the disciples doing, right? Gather. This is really in verses 12 to 14 primarily where I want to focus. Look at verse 12. It says they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, right? Now, Jerusalem is where, the Je where Jesus had told his disciples to go, and wait. They had been on the Mount of Olives, actually on the other side where he ascended, but they had moved obviously from, from that point, and now they were traveling that last distance from the, the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem, and they were to wait there until the Holy Spirit came. They were commanded that. If you see, if, if you look up to verse 4 in chapter 1, we didn't read it, but in verse 4, it says, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Yet. They were going to leave Jerusalem eventually, but not yet. 
stay there. And they go there, verse 13, and they meet together in an upper room, it says. Now, it's possible that this is the same upper room where they celebrated the Lord's Supper together, the, Jesus with his, with his apostles, right? Or maybe it was the room where Jesus appeared to, uh, to, to them after the, the resurrection. The important part, though, is that in this room, they were gathering together. Now, this wasn't the only place where they were gathering together. It also says at the end of Luke, we saw this last week, that they would meet in the temple to, uh, to pray and to, and to worship there as well. But the, the, the point is, they were gathering together. Now, who was there? Well, the apostles are all named. It's the same li- uh, list that Luke uses in chapter 6, at least 11 of them. Remember who's missing, Judas Iscariot, right? It's important. We'll get to that in a minute. But the others are all there. It also appears that there were, at least around them, maybe not at every instance all of them were there, but there was at least around them a larger group of of disciples as well, not just the named apostles, but a total group of about 120. Right, for context, that's, kind of, that's not that much different than the group that's, that's here on a Sunday morning, right? So this is, this is kind of a larger group of disciples in addition to the, to the 11. Now, included in that number, we see specifically called out the fact that the women were there. There were a number of women who had been a very large part of Jesus' followers from the very beginning, in some cases, some of them helping to finance the whole ministry of Jesus. And Luke is very attuned throughout his, throughout his gospel. He's very attuned to the needs and the importance and the place of women among the disciples of Jesus. Now, among the women, he specifically gives a special shout-out to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Right? Happy Mother's Day. This is the the last mention of Mary in the New Testament. And note here, both the specialness and the ordinariness that's being noted here. Now, it is special because, I mean, because Mary's Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's specifically called out, right? She gets named, right? So it's, it's special. She's the only one of them, right? She is the only one of these folks who has literally been with Jesus from the very beginning of his earthly ministry, right? And what's special is, interestingly enough, why it's really worth noting, she's still there, right? She's committed to the church, even after Jesus is physically gone. That's special. And yet, ordinary in a sense, because Mary is not being highlighted and called out here as some sort of a, of a co-redeemer of some kind, you know, as some traditions have at, uh, Christian traditions have at times misunderstood her role. No, she gets a shout out Her presence there is noteworthy, but one of the reasons why her presence there is noteworthy is because her presence there is ordinary. She had a special role in the life of Jesus, but at the same time now she's just kind of, she's another church member. She's among the the 120 or so who are gathered. Now, interestingly, we also see it noted that Jesus' brothers were there. They're not named here, but they're named in Mark chapter 6. James, who became a prominent leader in the church, most people believe, wrote the the book of James that we have in our Bible, uh, Joses, Judas, and Simon, those were the other brothers. Now, these brothers of Jesus, they had started off rather skeptical of of, of Jesus. Who is this guy? I'm not sure. Like, I mean, we kind of grew up in the same house, but I don't know. He's a little bit off a little bit. We see that in John chapter 7. Kind of understandable, really. I mean, imagine Imagine sibling rivalry, sibling kind of envy taken to the nth degree when your brother starts acting like he's the Messiah, right? So at first it's kind of, "Eh." but something must have changed because they're there too. Here they are. So in total, you have a group of about 120 disciples of Jesus that included all the prominent leaders, as well as a majority of the people whose names we don't even know. In fact, the majority of the people here are unnamed. 
They are the ordinary ones. And what do we see them doing? We see them coming together, gathering together, right? Pursuing unity with one another, devoting themselves to prayer and scripture and the church's business, right? That's what they're doing. Rather ordinary. What do we do while we wait? Well, I don't know. Let's get together because we should, we, 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 we should wait together. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that week in and week out, we gather, that's what we do. We gather as a group of disciples of, of Jesus, and we mean to take that seriously. I know I've made the, I've made the point that there is, no, there is no ordinary Sunday, and that's true in a sense. Every Sunday we get together, we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Every Sunday, in that sense, is resurrection day. So it's not, it's not ordinary in that sense, but at the same time, we all recognize not every week is Easter or Mother's Day, right? And yet, as important as your own personal relationship with Jesus is, you will not thrive through the vast majority of the year that is made, not, made up not of special weeks, but of ordinary weeks. You will not thrive if you attempt to do it all alone. Uh, the late R.C. Sproul uh, tells the story of a pastor who was at a picnic with someone who was trying to make the, uh, the classic case about why they don't need a church. And they say, look, my faith is real, but it's personal. It's, 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 it's private. I don't, I don't really need the church, at least not regularly, because I can worship God by myself. I can get by just fine on my own. So what the pastor did, this was, you know, a picnic that they were at. The pastor goes up to a, uh, a grill, you know, the old kind, not the gas kind, the charcoal grill. Had a pile of coals all kind of piled together, and they were all white hot, ready for the burgers to to come and be cooked. And the pastor takes the tongs and he takes one white hot coal and he moves it to the side, the other side of the grill, away from the pile. And, while, and, they, and he continues to chit-chat with this guy for a little while. And then he points out and he notices and says, look at what happened to that coal. And he said, these other coals, they're all hot. They're ready to, it was white hot a second ago too, but what happened? It's cold now. What do you, why do you think that is? You see the point? All right, we don't stay hot when we're alone. We need each other. Now, of course, as we already said, the church wasn't, the church wasn't gathering over those, um, those 10 days or so and doing nothing. They weren't just like just hanging out like by themselves. They weren't just, you know, chilling with their broskies doing nothing. They, they, were, they were there for, for, a, for a purpose. There were things that Jesus had told them not to do yet, but there were things that they could still do. And the first thing that they could really truly do is, is pray. Now, <laughs> Why so many times when we say that, when we say, okay, here's something you can do. The first thing you can do is pray. Why so many times when you say that does the air seem to go out of the balloon? Has that ever been your experience? You say, okay, someone will say, you're like, this is the starting point. Here's what I want you to do. Or a missionary, you know, kind of raising support and says, like, the first and most important thing you can do is, and you're kind of waiting, I'm, you know, I'm, and, and maybe you're sold, you're ready to help, is you can pray. And it's kind of like, oh, I mean, yeah, but right? Because you're all, you're all psyched up. The world's a mess. It needs Jesus. I'm ready. Let's go. What do I do? Pray. Uh. Now, I, look, I, I mean, that's, that's not what our response should be, but if we're honest, that's kind of what happens, at least in my own heart, a lot of times, because I want an action point, and I don't view this as an action point. Why not? Well, as I examine my own heart, probably my reluctance to pray in the vast majority of life that's in the middle I'm not talking about the extraordinary moments. Most of the times can kind of psych, we can psych ourselves up to be, to, to, be, to be praying during the extraordinary moments, moments of crisis or moments of great joy. We can kind of get ourselves to a point of prayer there. But why in the, in, in the middle? 
is it so challenging? Well, I think at least in my own heart, it's because at those moments, I have failed to fully appreciate the great things that God has done in the past, and I'm failing to appreciate how hard the future is really going to be if I attempt to do it on my own. And so here I am in the middle, failing to praise God for what He's done and failing to recognize my need for Him in the future. Now, we don't know exactly the content of the prayer that the, that the disciples were praying, but it was probably recognizing a bunch of these same things. Right? They probably prayed for needs in their own lives. Right? That's, that's appropriate when you gather together to pray. But sometimes we think that that's the only thing that we pray for. Like, like the story of the old minister who went to visit this little boy Johnny in his home, and he, and he asked Johnny if he prays every night. He said, Johnny, do you pray every night? Johnny said, nah, some nights I don't pray because some nights I don't want anything. See, and that's not the primary purpose of prayer. We don't just come and pray when we, when we want something. It's not wrong to bring our needs before God. He commands us to do that, but that's not the only purpose. So we could certainly see the disciples as well praying prayers of thanksgiving. certainly makes sense to assume that the disciples were thanking God for what they had just experienced. They had seen the resurrection of, of Jesus. They had seen the resurrected Jesus. They had seen Him ascended into heaven. They, they had an understanding of how the Bible all fit together, all because of these last 40 days that they had spent with him. And so they were praying, I'm sure, thanking God for that. They were also praying, I'm certain, for the mission that was ahead of them. Jesus said that they were going to take the message of what he had done into all the world, starting with Jerusalem and then to the very ends of the earth. He told them that the Holy Spirit was going to come and empower them to be able to do that. And so they were most certainly praying, God, fulfill your promise, make it happen right? Send your spirit. Now, this, makes, this, this raises an interesting question, a pretty common question about prayer when we think about it, because Jesus had promised his disciples that the Holy Spirit was going to come. He was going to come. And Jesus had gone to great lengths to teach them about how God is the ruler of all of human history and how everything happens according and exactly to his plan that he had set forth. Okay, well then, but then why pray? Why pray for the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit's going to come anyway? Isn't that the obvious question? This is a question we all ask. What's the purpose of prayer if God's will is already determined and it's going to happen anyway? And I can't give you the whole answer, but it does start with with correcting a common misunderstanding that all of us have about the primary purpose of prayer. The primary purpose of prayer is not really to conform God's will to our will, but to conform our will to God's will, to see things better from his perspective. Now, we do bring requests to him and we ask him to, 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 to do things, but, but in that sense, we're not changing God's mind. We are, though, participating in what God has ordained he's going to, to do. In other words, God has not only figured out and established the end of what he's going to do, he's figured out and established and ordained the means by which he's going to do it and the means by which he has chosen to do and accomplish his work in the world is through the prayers of His people, is through our participation. And so, yes, was the Holy Spirit coming? Absolutely. But was He going to help bring that about through the means of the prayers of His people as they prayed for God to do what He had promised to do? Yes, absolutely. Now, we do the same thing. We recognize that we are entering into God's plan when we pray, and we ask Him to do what he intends to do, even if at times we don't completely understand why he's doing what he's doing. Right? When we pray for people, when we pray for circumstances, right, sometimes it seems as if we're crying out and God's not listening, right? but he is. 
even if he chooses to answer in his timing, even if he chooses to answer not giving us a full explanation of what he's doing right away. Here's a Mother's Day example for you, right? Most of the, most of the lives of mothers is lived not in the big moments, right? I mean, you've got birth and graduations and weddings and all that kind of stuff or whatever. Those are the big moments. Most of the lives of moms are not lived in those moments. They're lived in the middle. They're lived in, in moments like this. I um, heard from a mom uh, just a few days ago about a particularly difficult dentist visit this week with her very young daughter, right? This is, this is where it's lived, in the middle, right? Crying children at, at, at see, this, is, this was the issue. Her daughter had a damaged tooth, very young, very young child, had a damaged tooth, and the tooth needed to come out. And that meant, despite the best efforts of the dentist, I'm sure, a great deal of pain and a great deal of discomfort for this little girl. And you can bet, you can absolutely be certain that while it's happening, this little girl is crying out. Right? She doesn't have the vocabulary yet to put to it, but you know what she's asking. She's pretty much saying, Mom, make it stop. Make the pain in my mouth stop. And as a mom, it's absolutely useless at that moment to attempt an explanation of how the pain will only be worse if the, pain, if the issue with the tooth isn't dealt with now about the anatomy of teeth and roots and all that kind of stuff and all the medical details. That explanation is absolutely worthless at a moment like that. At that moment, the only answer to the cries of a child is, is, the, is, is for the one with the full understanding of what's happening, the full knowledge of what needs to happen, to answer by doing what is best for that child, even if that child doesn't at that moment fully understand why. See, we wait, and while we wait for the next big thing, we live our lives here in the middle, and we pray, and we trust our plans, and we trust our what's next to the God who promises to do what we would want Him to do if we knew what He knew and loved ourselves as much as He loves us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're left without any perspective about what God is doing in the in the world. God has actually given us critical insight into how He works, which is why in the ordinary moments, we gather, we pray, and we study. Seems like that's what the disciples were doing. They were looking at a fair amount of Scripture themselves, right? I think that's a fair conclusion from what we see Peter doing, starting in verse 15. He's about to propose something at the congregational meeting, a piece of new business he's bringing up, and he's going to argue that they need another apostle. Jesus had appointed 12, one had betrayed him, that was Judas, and now there are 11, and because Judas not only left, Judas was dead, right? Rather graphically dead, by the way, we read some of that, right? They need a replacement. But it's not, it's not a practical argument that he begins by making, he goes back to, to Scripture. In verse 20, Peter quotes from Psalm 69, verse 25, where David, who is the writer of the psalm, prays that the dwelling place of God's enemy would become desolate. Right? God, take your enemy and make where they live desolate. And you might think, that's random. How do we get from there to Judas? Well, Psalm 69 is widely regarded, maybe only after Psalm 22, as one of the primary Old Testament texts that points to the betrayal of the Messiah. Right? So it fits. Similarly, Peter goes to Psalm 109, verse 8, and he quotes the line that says, let another take his office. That's also a psalm of David. And David is praying in that psalm, that an enemy of God would be removed and replaced by a worshiper of God. So that fits too. And it's possible that, you know, that God could have just plopped these two verses into Peter's 
mind, but James Boyce argues, and I agree, that Peter and his disciples were probably doing exactly what Jesus had taught them to do over the last 40 days, and that's studying the Scripture with an eye to how it all fits together, how the big picture of, of, of what God is doing in the world fits together in the grand story of human history and how it all leads to to Jesus. And so it's not just a couple of verses that are kind of plucked out here. They're going back to Scripture, studying it, and making a sound deduction, Judas should be replaced. Right? Because you don't just take it from one random verse plucked out of the Old Testament. This is God's pattern. That's what Peter's saying. He's like, we kind of see this. We see specific instances, and it kind of fits with God's larger pattern. God chose 12 sons from Jacob to form 12 tribes of of Israel that would become the foundation of the people of God. And so, in a similar way, Jesus chose 12, one of those he knew would betray him. But the number 12 makes sense. Jesus wanted 12 to form the foundation for the people of the, the new Israel, the new community of God's people. So it's a pattern. Now, this, this too ought to form our pattern as we, study the, as we study the Bible, day in, day out, week in, week out, in the ordinary, in the in-between. Right? We don't, in a moment of crisis, go to our Bibles and try to find the verse, right? just when we need an extraordinary word of God. Right? We don't play Bible roulette and kind of flip through our Bibles and put our finger down and say, there it is. Take that as a sign. No, we read our Bibles in the middle. We read them regularly on the ordinary days so that we get the big picture of what, has, of what God has done and we're ready for the extraordinary moment when it comes. Because Make no mistake about it, you're not going to be ready for the extraordinary moment if you aren't regularly studying and practicing in the ordinary. I was reminded of this by a, a friend this week, a friend who is in law enforcement, done, and he's done training in, in crisis response. He told the story of a situation where he was participating in a simulation in a school, right? practicing how to respond to a, to a crisis or an emergency, a shooter or or something terrible that we unfortunately need to think about these, these days. And during this simulation, this exercise, there were different people in the school who had different jobs, different assigned roles. And one of the roles was assigned to one of the administrators, one of the workers in the, in the school office. Uh, her job was very, very simple. Something's happening. You get a, a sense that something is going wrong. Your job is to dial 911. Now, very simple, right? 911, we're all kind of conditioned. We know what those digits are. There's just three numbers. Not a hard job. Seems simple. Shouldn't have to practice that, right? Well, in this simulation, the bad guy, the pretend bad guy, enters into the office, and he looks scary, but remember, it's just pretend. But just the stress of that moment, the stress of the pretend crisis, so affected the woman in the office that even though she knew it was just an exercise, she could not physically bring herself to dial 911 on her phone. She was literally paralyzed because of the stress of the extraordinary moment. Now, here's the lesson for us. If you are not practicing and rehearsing the truths about God, if you're not devoting yourself to the prayer and to the reading of Scripture, not able to do it in the ordinary, do not assume that it will become reflex for you in the extraordinary. Right? In other words, God often gives us periods of waiting in the middle, in the middle ordinary moments, so that we can rehearse and so that we can prepare for the extraordinary when it comes. Now, of course, there is ultimately a time to act, to, to make decisions, to move forward, which is the final thing that we do in the ordinary course of life. As we, as we gather, as we pray, as we study, 
GPS, by the way, gather, pray, study. I didn't notice that until after I did it. It's kind of cool, isn't it? Right? But it kind of fits, right? After we fix ourselves and establish our position, right, our, our GPS, right, then what do we do? Then we act. It's terrible, right? It's kind of like a dad joke almost, right? But, but, but after we fix ourselves, then we act, and that's totally, that's totally appropriate, right? What did Peter do and the disciples do with this business item, this important thing that they, are, that they have to address? They were waiting together. They were praying. They were studying the Scriptures. They were rightly reasoning that a replacement was needed to reform the, the, the 12 of the, of the apostles. So what do they do? Well, they start with some very practical steps, nothing crazy, very ordinary. They establish some job qualifications. Right? You wouldn't post a job on, on Indeed or you know, forward a job posting to someone on your LinkedIn account or something like that unless you had some qualifications for the job that you were looking for. Now, what qualifications would a successful candidate need in order to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, verse 21, they say he ought to have been a follower of Jesus from the beginning to the end, right? From his baptism to his ascension, the entirety of Jesus's public ministry. Specifically, it says also a witness to the resurrection, right? So you got those, you get those highlighted qualifications. And from there, it seems they narrowed it down to two. Verse 23, they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. These were the two finalists. Now, possibly they were the only two that met the qualifications. Easy, right? Maybe there was a larger group of people who met, the, met some of those qualifications, but they had some other process that kind of narrowed it down. Regardless, here they were with two. Now what do they do? Well, here now they leave the decision to, to Jesus. And you say, well, no, it looks like they cast lots. They were basically like rolling dice, right? Rock, paper, scissors, best two out of three. No. Casting lots, at least as it's intended here, is not a lack of faith on their part. It's actually a great act of faith because they're recognizing that the last qualification that all the apostles had and need to have is that that apostle is chosen and commissioned by Jesus directly. And so they go back to an established practice of the Old Testament. You can take a look at places like 1 Chronicles 26 where decisions were left to the Lord. And they pray in verse 24, you, Lord, know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. And New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce says that the most likely way to understand this word Lord here and the way they were using it is specifically in reference to, to Jesus. They're leaving the decision to Jesus because that's how the apostles were chosen. That's where it belonged. And so they cast lots, something like Mark Stones that are kind of rolled out of a of a jar, and the lot falls to Matthias. And then here we have number 12. Thank you, Jesus. Now, without a doubt, right, a part of this whole thing is extraordinary, right? The choosing of, of, the, of the replacement for Judas Iscariot, right? That's a, that's, a, that's a relatively extraordinary kind of a thing, right? And, and we can say, I think rightly, that the use of lots in consulting the will of the Lord like this, this is not normative, in fact, this is the last time that something was, like, was done like this to choose any kind of leader in the church. After this, in the book of Acts and the epistles and stuff, we see leaders chosen in new churches and stuff all the time. They never do this again. This process isn't used for the remainder of the New Testament. And it's not prescriptive. In other words, it's not a command for us to, to decide what God's will is in this way in our lives. But the principle, if not the specifics, are applicable to us as well. And the principle is this. In the normal ordinary course of life, we make plans and then we trust the results to God, right? We plan and God chooses to direct based on what only He knows and what He determines to be best. 
Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Now, the title of the book of Acts is usually shortened to Acts, just Acts. And most Bibles will have, if you look at the top of chapter 1, most Bibles will call it the Acts of the Apostles. Now, it's customary when you preach from the book of Acts to remind people that a more accurate title of this would probably be the Acts of the Holy Spirit, or more generally, the Acts of, Acts of God. Now, I don't think we need to be cranky about what we call the book, right? So long as we remember that the Acts of the Apostles would be worthless and ineffective if not for the Acts of God, right? So let me leave you with that as we wait, as we find ourselves here in the middle, right? Let me leave you with that. Peter and the apostles chose another apostle, Matthias, but they needed to know that Jesus was ultimately making the choice, that he was guiding their decision, that he was leading the way, that he was empowering their mission. We need the same thing. We need to understand that same thing. That's why we, in this age, between the big events, why we faithfully do the ordinary things, why we gather, why we pray, why we study, and yes, why we take action. Why we do that, and while we do that, we must remember that we will find no success in any of those things unless Jesus is leading and Jesus is empowering us to do it. Remember, Jesus is the one, we talk about gathering, Jesus is the one who knows what perfect community and fellowship is really like because that's what he has experienced from all eternity with the Father and with the Spirit. Remember, Jesus is the one who taught his disciples and modeled for them how they were to pray. Jesus is the one who teaches us to understand and interpret the Scripture because Jesus himself is the incarnate Word of God. And when it came time for action, Jesus left the perfect fellowship of heaven and came to earth where he acted in line with Scripture to give himself as a sacrifice on our behalf to die on a hill called Calvary, rise again, and ascend into heaven. Right? Jesus knows perfectly what it is to gather, pray, study, and act. And anything that we attempt to do in any of those areas will be absolutely worthless unless strengthened, informed, and empowered by that same Jesus. And if that seems ordinary to us, then quite honestly, we haven't fully grasped what all of that means. And if we're, we're having trouble, or if you're having trouble grasping that, or if you're having trouble feeling inspired and strengthened and empowered to fulfill what God has asked you to do, well, then the good news is that God has sent your Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit to help you. The Holy Spirit is coming on the disciples, and, and, and that's next week. That's what we're going to talk about in our next week. All right, the big event will come, but first the ordinary. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are as active here in the midst, in the midst, in the middle of big events as you are in the great and prominent events of history. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be at work in this church that you would be at work in our lives, that you would be at work in our families, and yes, that you would be at work in the spread and the proclamation of the gospel around the world through the ordinary work of your church, the gathering together of its people, the prayers of the saints, the study of your word as it informs our lives, and the informed actions we take, guided by your Holy Spirit, and praising you for the work of Jesus. Or we come in his name. Amen.